Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Welcome back. I am so happy that you are here. Today, I want to dive into the neuroscience of synesthesia, a condition where people experience a mixing of senses. The word synesthesia actually has its origins in Greek roots. Syn meaning union and aesthesis meaning sensation. A union of the senses. And that's exactly what it is. Some people with synesthesia might hear music and see shapes or colors or taste chocolate. Or they might read words on a page and smell lavender or see the color blue. The sky's the limit. So this episode is actually inspired by a get-together that I went to a couple of weekends ago where I met two different people with two similar but still wildly different forms of synesthesia. And I mean this in complete seriousness. It was by far the coolest conversation I had ever been a part of. Ever. I mean, I didn't want to leave at the end of the night. So... They both had the kind of synesthesia where they associated words with colors, but their associations varied with their personal experiences, their favorite colors, what they thought defined a word, quote-unquote, etc. So one woman, Victoria, defined words by the vowels because vowels were present in every single word, and she considered them the defining characteristics of a word. Every vowel had a color associated with it, and the other letters in the word may have had some colors, but it wasn't as strong as the vowels. So when she read the word or saw the word in her mind, it was one uniform color, which was a mix of the vowels in the word and the first letter of the word. The other person, Kathy, defined the word by the consonants in the word, which she, which she saw as the defining characteristics of the word because vowels were present everywhere. Her color of the word was defined most by the first letter. I obviously asked about my name, Barbara, which was the color blue. And she said that the month of September was red. And, you know, blue, Barbara, B, I thought that was, like, pretty straightforward. But September red? I guess I, I didn't really, like, I wasn't able to see a super clear association. But it's not my brain. I asked her what her favorite color was, and she said that it was mostly shades of blue and purple and pink, and those were actually the main colors in which she saw words. Apparently, a lot of words were pink to her, which is just, it's kind of fun to think about, you know, rose-colored glasses and all that. Now, when both of these people read a page from a book, for example, it would come out as a stream of colors. Or another really cool example that they brought up is, have you guys ever made those little cheat sheets for exams? You know, the index cards, which you're allowed to write material or equations on, and then you bring it into the exam room so you don't need to memorize something like Schrodinger's equation or some shit like that. But if if you've never seen one of those, it is a tiny little index uh, index card crammed, and I mean crammed, if you're doing it right, with information, because like any good student, you're going to try and get out of memorizing as much as humanly possible. So they were actually able to color code their index cards in their heads to draw information from it faster. Isn't that insane? 
Another fascinating thing was that their color associations with words didn't change much after they were formed during childhood. For that person, September was always the color red, regardless of whatever life experiences they would associate with September in the future. But this conversation sparked an intense desire to understand the neurological basis of synesthesia, how it comes about, and why it varies so much from person to person. So here we are, and thank you for being along for the ride. So as I mentioned before, there are dozens of different kinds of synesthesia, some more common than others. The one that I discussed earlier is called grapheme color, where certain letters or numbers are associated with specific colors. There's also sound-to-color synesthesia or lexical gustatory synesthesia, which is actually super rare, but it's where words or sounds evoke different tastes. And for some reason, I, I really imagine that being very distracting. Like, you hear, like, a Geico commercial and you're like, why does it taste like fajitas, you know? I, just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I would find that distracting. But in fact, I think that there are over 73 different types of synesthesia, and some sources I read said over 80. Um, and this evidence is based off of the personal accounts of like 1,100 synesthetes, which are people with synesthesia. They're synesthetes. And I really hope I'm saying that right, but I could be wrong. I'll link a website in the show notes where you can take a look at all the in- incredible different kinds of synesthesia out there. Think of it kind of like a fun little BuzzFeed quiz, but weird brain things. I ended up taking it, and I realized that my brain is very uncool, and everything is gray to me, and I'm very sad about it now. So if I were to hazard a guess right now, before I start the research process, I would say that synesthesia is probably brought about by extra connections in the cortex, between the parts of your brain responsible for visual processing or auditory processing or anything else. So for example, if you're processing some sort of visual stimulus, such as a word on a page, you might trigger a network associated with processing music, and your perception is some sort of amalgamation of the two. But let's find out what's happening. So there appear to be two major theories concerning the neurological basis of synesthesia, And both are based on the idea that the brain has specific regions dedicated to specific functions. For example, the visual cortex. It's responsible for processing visual information, and the auditory cortex is responsible for processing, you guessed it, auditory information. Now within these brain regions, there's even further specialization that occurs. Let's stick with the visual cortex example for now. The primary visual cortex, V1, is made up of six layers, with layer one closest to the surface and each subsequent layer going deeper and deeper into the brain. When visual information comes into your eyes, it travels from your retinas and then into a brain region called the lateral geniculate nucleus, the LGN. The LGN is a part of a relay center of the brain, the thalamus, which if you've listened to previous episodes, you will know is a big, big VIP in the brain. From the LGN, input is routed to the primary visual cortex, specifically mostly to layer 4, which in turn has connections to other layers. V1 actually has a very well-defined retinotopic map of spatial information in your brain, which simply means that specific parts of V1 are allocated for specific parts of your field of vision. And it's kind of like a map. (laughs) Uh, There is a 
fascinating body of research here about receptive fields and how each neuron in the retina covers an area in your field of vision and how that information is consolidated and processed in LGN and then in V1 and further on. There are off neurons and on neurons and all I remember is that when I covered receptive fields in college in my neuroscience lectures, I was both really confused, it was definitely the hardest topic for me, but also really amazed because it's, you know, it's a very beautiful system. Uh, it's very cool work, and I want to give it the attention it deserves, so I will be covering receptive fields in another episode. But if that is something that is calling out to you, please look it up. I highly recommend checking out the classic experiments by Huber and Wessel. Also could be pronouncing that wrong but I don't care. <laughs> Sorry for the digression, but back to business. So the cells of the primary visual cortex, V1, their neuronal responses are capable of discriminating orientation of objects, differences in color, a little bit, spatial frequency, moderately complex patterns, etc. I think a good way of thinking about it is that V1 kind of codes for edge detection. So you can tell when a square of black color stops and becomes a square of white color, but V1 doesn't really describe the imagery as in the scene as a whole. Information from V1 is further routed to other visual areas, titled very descriptively V2, V3, V4, V5, etc., and then there's some others. Um, but all of those have specific functions in processing color, motion, helping to form memories. I also want to bring up two primary pathways by which visual information is routed through these brain regions, commonly called the what pathway and the where pathway. The first is mainly responsible for form recognition and object representation, literally telling you what the object is. That glass of water I'm staring at, it's a glass of water. This ventral stream begins with V1, goes through V2, and then through V4, and then to the inferior temporal cortex. The second, the where pathway, or the dorsal stream, is associated with determining motion, representing object location, and controlling your body. Think of a dodgeball coming straight at your face on a elementary school playground. The where pathway is going to tell you how fast it's coming at your face and the fact that you need to move away from it. This pathway begins with V1, goes through V2, and then to the dorsomedial area, and V5, and the inferior parietal lobule. So I just threw a bunch of words and concepts at you, but the really big takeaway here is that visual processing occurs through a series of steps through a series of brain regions, which are responsible for determining color, or finding edges, or determining how fast an object is moving, etc., etc., so how can we tie this back to synesthesia? Let's take a look at the most common type of synesthesia, graphene color, meaning the association of letters or numbers with color. The area thought to be mostly responsible for color processing, V4, lies physically adjacent to the areas involved in identifying letters and numbers. A paper published in, I think, 2001 by Dr. Ramachandran and Hubbard Propose that this kind of synesthesia is caused by hyperconnectivity or crosstalk or cross activation between these brain regions. Now, this is the really cool part. This could be brought about by a genetic mutation. 
that limits the amount of synaptic pruning that occurs during early childhood or adulthood. So synaptic pruning is when your brain literally kind of trims the connections between neurons to streamline networks or to stop random brain regions from activating each other or simply removing connections that we no longer need. It is a very important process and we know that we need it in order to retain functional brains. Now the real beauty of their proposal is that the mutation may be expressed selectively due to transcription factors in the specific brain regions that are hyperconnected. And this might not only explain why there are different kinds of synesthesia, because this mutation could be expressed in different places. So it's not like your brain is hyperconnected as a whole, but sort of randomly due to your genetics in specific brain regions. They tied this back into the idea that if this mutation were expressed very diffusely, so a little bit everywhere, across multiple brain regions, there may be extensive cross-wiring between brain regions that represent abstract concepts, which could explain the link between creativity, metaphor, and synesthesia. And that can explain why there is a higher incidence of synesthesia in artists and poets and creatives. It is such a beautiful explanation, and there has been abundant research into whether synesthesia is genetic, and they have discovered that, yes, there does appear to be a strong genetic component. In fact, it runs in families, sort of. They've discovered that it is heterogeneous and polygenetic, meaning that it's tied to more than one gene, and it also appears to be more common in females, with a ratio of something like six to one, but a concrete gene or set of genes has yet to be found. I love this. I just, I think it's like such a, it's a very clean theory. And it's just like, it feels like the story has a beginning, middle, and end. But we're not done yet. There is another theory published the same year that Ramachandran and Hubbard published theirs. This one relies on the idea of disinhibited feedback or reducing the amount of inhibition along feedback pathways. It's been well established that when information is passed from one brain area to another, it can also travel back to earlier areas. So we know that V1 projects to V2 and V4, but V4 might also project back to V1. Now this is important for regulation and maintaining homeostasis in the brain. Normally, the balance between excitation and inhibition is well maintained. But if there's some sort of imbalance, you might get signals from later stage processing influencing earlier stages. So perhaps activating color processing regions in turn activates V1 more, leading to an association of letters with colors that you might not normally have. This might also explain why synesthesia can be brought about by drug use, such as magic mushrooms. Highly recommend listening to that episode. Or LSD or something similar because taking hallucinogenic substances might alter the balance of excitation and inhibition in your brain and change the way that you perceive sensory stimuli. These These findings have been validated by some functional neuroimaging studies, which have shown that increased and early activation of V4 when reading letters or hearing sounds in synesthetes but they lack the resolution to determine which theory, disinhibited feedback or cross-activation, is really the correct explanation. And as science progresses, I am positive that we will know more soon. But that 
is a bite-sized overview of the neuroscience of synesthesia. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neuroscienceamateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.